Should Britain be a monarchy? Should it have a king or queen at the top of its political and social order? It's a hugely controversial question which triggers powerful emotions, especially for those who view the royal family as synonymous with all that is best about Britain. But a growing minority has not only reservations about the Windsors, but think they shouldn't play a role in Britain's future. Recent polling found that 25% of people would now like to see the monarchy abolished, a rise of 10% in just five years. Of course, that's far from a majority, but it's millions of people who are barely acknowledged, let alone reflected in the national conversation. So should we get rid of the royals? And what are the arguments for becoming a republic? With me to discuss that today is Graham Smith, CEO of Republic, a British Republican pressure group advocating the replacement of the monarchy with a parliamentary republic. Graham Smith, welcome to Downstream. Thank you. Have you always been a Republican? Uh, yeah, I've always instinctively been a Republican. I remember in 1986, when I was 12 years old, when they had the Andrew Sarah Ferguson wedding. Um, the school wanted to bring the TV into the classroom so we could watch it, and I wanted to go outside into the playground. So it's something that I've always instinctively felt. And your parents, were they Republicans? Yeah, my parents uh, have always been Republican. Um, I remember my dad saying that he was um, probably a similar age, probably about 10 or 11 when he saw the King visit. And he that was the moment he realised he didn't like the monarchy. Um, but they didn't instill it in me. They just kind of allowed us to uh, make up our own mind. Um, and I think when you're a kid, there's that sort of basic childish kind of notion of fairness, yeah. uh, which sticks with you. Um, and then when you learn as you get older more about it, uh, it makes even less sense. So your parents must have been quite, strange is a bit of a harsh word, but unusual because even if it's a minority pursuit today, republicanism is a much bigger strain within public life than it was 30 years ago. So yeah, but I think that it, I think it's always been uh, a reasonably substantial um, minority. But yeah, I think it was probably, um, it wasn't something that was really talked about and it was certainly more difficult 30 years ago to have a sensible conversation about it. So yeah, unusual. I think, you know, they were both... Uh, Labour members, and they're both, you know, um, on the I think on the right side of a lot of issues. Um, and uh, yeah, I think for them as well, it was just instinctive. So sort of CND sort of yeah, peace activist people, or not really? No, but I mean, just sort of you, you know, fairly run of the mill sort of voters, really. That just progressives, yeah, progressive, definitely, yeah. Because it's an interesting one, isn't it? That although the UK in the twentieth century had a really large, successful Labour movement, you know, you can look at socialists like Clement Attlee or Nye Bevan, and actually, you know, they, they were making arguments, well, particularly Attlee, making arguments for constitutional monarchy. Mm. So this idea that you're on the left of the economic debate and that you're also a Republican, yeah. that's intuitive for many people in Europe, but in Britain, it's not the case. Well, I think that, I mean, I think there's people on the left in Europe that have, you know, where the monarchy survives, people on the left have also argued for it. And part of it, I think, is a kind of... Um, there's a a reluctance to get into big constitutional change. Part of it is that the the way our constitution is set up now gives the government an awful lot of power, and that is always helpful to any prime minister, whichever party they're in. Um, so rocking that boat is not necessarily in their interests. I also think that with the Cold War probably um, sharpened divisions, and that became sort of a, a potential symbol of division that they didn't want to uh, get involved with. So um, I think there were sharper attacks against the left from the right in terms of communism and, and so on. So maybe that, I think, probably delayed a serious conversation about the monarchy. 
Um, but, you know, it did come up and uh, get discussed from time to time. But the really vocal Republicans were pretty uh, few and far between. So why do you want to end the British monarchy? What's it done to you, Graham? Well, same as it does to all of us. I mean, it's... It, it, there's a few basic points. The first one is just a matter of principle. You know, we are uh, Democrats in this country. Most of us, the vast majority of us, believe in democracy. Um, increasingly, most of us, I think, uh, don't necessarily believe in the British variant of democracy. We we have a lot of problems with, you know, the whole raft of uh, issues such as the electoral system, the, you know, the way the House of Commons works, the House of Lords and all the rest of it. Um but the the crown is you know at the center of that, and the monarchy is at the center of that. And Democrats should not be supporting an institution that rests on an entirely different set of values, which is you know sort of feudal values of bloodline, elitism, exceptionalism, um, and that should be enough for most people. But if you're not that convinced about the uh, the principle, the institution itself is not fit for purpose. You know, it is not going too far to say that it's corrupt, um, which is not uh, about criminal or illegal behaviour. It's about sort of um, abuse of public office in terms of. Uh, uh, public money, uh, abuse through lobbying behind closed doors. And there's a whole raft of issues which, in the way in which that institution operates. Not to mention the family themselves, who are not people we would vote for if we had a free and fair election. Um, but then the crown itself, you know, you've got the principle in the palace, but the, the, the constitution itself is pretty awful. I mean, we've got a, some people like to think that we've got this uh, uh Constitution, you know, the mother of parliaments, which is envied around the world, and it isn't. Uh, most countries that have parliamentary democracies have uh, do it better than we do. Uh, and the crown is a big part of that because it centralizes power in the hands of Downing Street um, at the expense of parliament and the rest of us. So, you know, whichever way you cut it, it's not an institution we should be supporting. So when I say things, it's because I'm playing devil's advocate and to sort of make sure your your arguments are, are as robust as they can be so the audience can make their own minds up. The claim about corruption is an interesting one because some of the least corrupt countries on earth have constitutional monarchies. So for instance, often the Nordics are a byword for accountability and, and, and transparency in, in public life. And they have constitutional monarchs in Sweden, in Norway, in Denmark, same with the Netherlands. You could say the same with regards to Japan um, has an emperor. So the corruption argument, I mean, I could come back to you and say, well, there are lots of other constitutional monarchies which aren't corrupt. Sure, we might need to make some changes, but we could still have a sovereign. What would you say to that? The Those countries, the Nordic countries, they may well not be that corrupt, but that corruption still exists within their own monarchies. Now, they might not always see it like that in the same way that many people in this country don't see it like that. But I uh, have a close relationship with Republicans in those countries, and they are well aware that just as our monarchies, our monarchy uh, abuses public money, so does theirs. Um, they have various exemptions that they've lobbied for from uh, from laws, such as you know official secrecy laws and so on. Um, so it, it's on a different scale, and sometimes it's not so obvious. But the, you know, a monarchy is. I mean, the comparison I make is the MPs' expenses scandal, which is what now 13, 14 years ago. Um, the issue is that if you have an institution which is not open and transparent and not properly accountable, and they have the people in that institution have access to money and to opportunity to lobby, knowing that no one's going to see what they're doing, there will be abuse, and that's just human nature. It's not everybody. Some people are good enough to, you know, police themselves, 
Um, but that is how the monarchy is. It's highly secretive. They've got access to everybody and anybody they want to have access to in terms of lobbying. And they have access to hundreds of millions of pounds of our money uh, every year. Um, and the end result is that they behave in a way that is corrupt. Now, the only way that you can really stop corruption is with transparency and accountability. And you can't do that with a monarchy because um, if you are transparent, you don't like what you what you see, that you can't do anything about it. You can't remove them. Um, so you have to have the accountability in there as well, which means you have to have someone who can be removed uh, and then choose someone else. So... You know, it it is kind of a design flaw that monarchies are inherently corrupt. But the, the, I suppose the, the comparison here is, if you look at France, let's just do Europe because, you know, we don't want to have too many variables at play. France and Italy have higher levels of corruption, both republics, than the Nordics. Or if you look in East Asia, Japan has um, less corruption than China. And these these are on formal indexes for global corruption. That's not my opinion. Yeah, but I mean, I'm talking about, I'm not saying that the monarchy makes Britain corrupt. I'm saying the monarchy itself is corrupt. Right. So the royal household, and it's not, you know, they're not. So we wouldn't have less corruption in public life if we became a republic? No, I mean, I, well, well, so I, 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 think, you, less, I but think you could have, and there's a wider argument about the quality of our politics. Um, I think the British politics is uh, pretty poor uh, across the board for all sorts of reasons, and there are certainly, um, there are certainly plenty of accusations of corruption. Um but I think that uh, the the household itself, you know, I mean, give examples. Let's get into detail. So, as I said, I'm not talking. Although, you know, I did report uh, Charles um, to the police on suspicion of uh, selling honours for um, for donations um, in exchange for donations, um, and the police have just dragged their feet and still haven't done anything about that. So, there is an accusation of criminality. Um, it's only an accusation, and they still haven't done anything about it which itself is telling. But there are, you know, corruption doesn't have to be illegal. It just has to be, you know, dishonest abuse of public office for personal gain. And they spend, uh, again, look at the um, MPs expenses scandal. That was amounts of money that sort of ranged from the low hundreds up to the tens of thousands. Uh, the royals spend tens of millions um, and certainly several millions at a time on things like doing up their palatial homes, uh, they fly around by helicopter all the time, um, and they uh, take the income from the two duchies, which should be going to the treasury. So now this is an extraordinary amount of money. I think a lot of people aren't aware of this. Can you just explain that two duchies? Yeah, so the two duchies are two landed estates that um, they sh they were all part of the crown lands, and they were essentially hived off, and allowed, they were allowed to keep hold of them. Uh, and they treat them as private estates, but they're crown property. And each one of them brings in a profit of around £22 million a year, which goes to so the Duchy of Lancaster now goes to Charles as monarch, and the Duchy of Cornwall now goes to uh, William. So on the Queen's death, William suddenly gained a £22 million a year income uh, for doing nothing other than being the son and heir uh, to his father. Um, and that money should be going to uh, the Treasury. And it, but some people will say, look, no, it's not a lot of money. I mean, I, I added up uh, the incomes of heads of state, elected heads of state across Europe, and you add them all up, £22 million is six times all of them together. So it's a hell of a lot of money for someone who isn't even a head of state, in the case of William. But if you add those two, two amounts together, you're talking over £40 million, and £40 million was cut from a, uh, a fund to help people uh, with their rents and deposits. 
And when that was cut, people said, well, that's going to lead to more homelessness. So it's that kind of money that can have a real impact. And instead of it going to people that uh, might be struggling with their rent, it's going into William's pocket. Well, particularly Cornwall. I mean, two, you know, £22 over 10 years, £220 million. If you look at Cornwall, it's one of the poorest regions in Europe. I mean, you just had the levelling up, the second round of levelling up funding, and I think they're spending £35 million on connecting the four large urban areas in Cornwall. So basic infrastructure doesn't exist. And you're giving, like yeah. say, somebody who isn't even the monarch, £22 million a year. Yes, and it, I mean, absolutely. And also, if you look at the Silly Isles as well, which um, the, the Duchy of Cornwall claims to own, is you know questionable claim, but we can't prove otherwise. Um, they claim to own most of the land there. And they lost their helicopter um, because it was being privately run and it got closed down by the owner. Um, and, you know, the, the Isles get completely cut off during winter months sometimes because wow. it's too rough for boats and planes. So the helicopter is quite important. So they lost that and Charles didn't lift a finger to help put it back. Now, there is someone, a private investor, quite some, you know, it's been gone for 10 years or more. Um, so that's being reintroduced. But he doesn't lift a finger to to help or hasn't done. Um, you know, we went down to the Isles of Scilly, talked to people who are leaseholders. So they, you know, they own their house, but it sits on Dutchy land and they were exempted from leasehold reform uh, laws. So they don't have the rights that anybody else has um, to buy their lease, to buy the freehold. They just simply can't do it. And that has a huge impact on uh, their uh, sort of financial future. Which is very much a feudal remnant, right? The whole leasehold thing, but the fact that it's... Well, indeed, yeah. But the, but the various laws have, have been introduced over the last 60 years, which give people rights to buy the freehold. Um, and that, uh, the Duchy was simply exempted from that on their land. But I mean, the, you know, the Isles of Scilly is an interesting case. It, it kind of is run like its own little feudal state sometimes. And, you know, we talked to the taxi drivers. There's only two taxis on the island and the... the um, they said that you can tell the difference between the roads owned by the duchy and the roads owned by the council because the duchy ones are falling apart. So they don't get looked after. So he takes all this money and they don't put anything back in. So this idea that he cares about the public good and you don't, you don't think that's true? Or does, is he not, is, is, are his affairs and the estate so large, so complex that there are just things that Charles clearly isn't going to have a, a sort of well, any he, idea about? He is, he, he is said to take a very close personal interest in the way the duchy was being run when he was the Duke of Cornwall. Um, so I, I think he has to take responsibility for it. Whether he cares, I think he believes he cares, but he has, in terms of his own views on things, his, his um, agenda is not really shaped around people's real issues and problems. It's shaped around his own very um, rather odd, eccentric ideas Um which, again, are based on a kind of a, a worldview that is feudal and which is, sees the importance of someone like him in the middle and, and everybody else sort of um, plowing the fields. So I think that his, you know, his, his environmentalism as well is, is that kind of mindset as well. So um, he takes his view and he's not that open to criticism or to engaging with other people's opinions and uh, he will just push his own view. So... Um, um, and as far as his own interests are concerned, he has fought tooth and nail to protect them uh, over the years, as have the rest of the world's. Would you make of him personally? Because obviously you speak to so many people who are impacted by Charles. Obviously, you know, there's been this gestation period for decades where he was waiting to become the head of state. And so I think lots of people have been able to form ideas and views on him, which wasn't necessarily the case for his mother before she became the sovereign. So 
as, as, a, as a human being, as a person, I'm not asking you to judge him because yeah. you don't know him, but from the information you've managed to gain, what's your, what's your read on the kind of person he is? Well, I, I, I don't think that we would vote for him if, he was a, if there was a free and fair election in which he was up against uh, other candidates. I think that he is, because of the, the world in which they're born into, they're quite prickly, quite um, thin-skinned. Um, all of them are prone to a real temper. You know, there's uh, stuff about um, Harry and William recently has also been said about Charles. Um, so he gets very angry. He's quite petulant, I think. Um, and he's, there have been various anecdotes of him being very um, uh, sort of disinterested in any kind of serious criticism or discussion about his views. He presents his views. He expects people to sort of um, applaud and take them on and, and uh, you know, deliver on them. So he's not sort of intellectually engaged in that way. So, um, and I don't think he really understands the world outside of his very immediate sort of circle of friends and advisors. So, yeah, I don't have a strong feeling, uh, sort of view in terms of whether he's a good or bad person, but I think he is a complicated person who is not fit for public office. And is he different from his mother and father in that respect? Because obviously, part of the strength of the brand of Elizabeth was that she was there for the Second World War. Prince Philip, obviously, not from the UK originally. He, he saw what it was like to to lose power for a monarchy to get the boot. You know, his, you know, his, his own family was in great jeopardy. So... Do you think there's a genuine absence of kind of real world experience amongst Charles and William, which actually you could say was sort of a bit of a forte for their yeah, I mean, I, grandmother I and I mother? Don't, I don't think the Queen had real world experience. I mean, she was never um, sent to any kind of formal education. Um, I think the you know the stuff about her being in the army. I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm sure she did something, but it's not. Well, she wasn't sent into the armed forces in the way that everybody else was. Um, and they were all pretty, uh, you know, they're all the product of the same world. And Charles is product of their, uh, them as being parents, you know. Um, so, so you don't think Charles is more cosseted than his parents? No, I think they're as, as so, much as, yeah. I think I perhaps William and Harry are a little bit less so, but um, uh, not least because they had to go to, I mean, Harry, uh, Charles went to school, but um I think they grew up in a different era. So even the schools they went to wouldn't have been quite the same as the ones that uh, the experience that Charles might have had. But um, um, but yeah, I think the before, I mean, the Queen's era and before, I think they were very uh, closeted in, in a very strange world that they grew up in. Can we row back a bit? You said she didn't do schooling. Yeah, you know, she didn't go to, she didn't have a formal education. So what do you mean? She didn't go to a primary school? I don't think, as far as I'm aware, she didn't go to school at all. But I, I, I Wow. Um, she was educated at home, um, and the idea was that she was uh, had to be, you know, a lady. Um, so she had no formal education. I, I don't quote me on that, but I, it certainly it wasn't the sort of uh, education that you know everybody else has. Um, so people say that you know there's this benefit of having this wise monarch. Mm. She became monarch at the age of twenty five or twenty six, and. You know, Churchill was the Prime Minister, who was, was he, 70 at the time, I think. I think the idea of her coming from this very closeted, strange world with not a lot of education, that she was then going to somehow be of any use to the 70-year-old Winston Churchill, who was back in for the second time, having been Prime Minister through a war, I think is a bit of a nonsense. You mentioned a moment ago about reporting now King Charles the police. Can you expand on that a little? 
Yeah, so um, I the time, Sunday Times uh, reported um, that there was a letter that they'd got hold of between Michael Fawcett, who was then the CEO of one of Charles's charities, to a um, Saudi businessman. And uh, this was fairly explicitly saying, we're going to get you uh, an honor, a knighthood. Um, and there was also a suggestion that they would help with his uh, citizenship application and saying, to be clear, this is, you know, in return for your generous support for the charity. Now, offering a knighthood in exchange for any kind of consideration is a criminal offense. And we had this back in Tony Blair's government um, when various people, including Blair, were interviewed on uh, suspicion of doing the same thing. And that went nowhere because they couldn't prove the link. You know, it's I think everyone could assume the link, but you couldn't prove it in a court cash of law. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but with this letter, it was pretty black and white. Now, it seemed to me fairly obvious that Michael Forsey, who is, you know, he's a friend and a, a close confidant of Charles. He's been um, considered to be one of his closest confidants for years. Uh, he couldn't get or secure an honour for anybody without going through Charles. So the implication is that Charles and Fawcett were saying to people, you know, if you give us donations, then we will secure an honour for you, which is a criminal offence, as I say. Now, um, I therefore wrote to, well, I went onto the Metropolitan Police website and just reported it as a crime, saying, you know, this is a, this needs to be investigated. Um, and Norman Baker, the former Lib Dem MP, wrote to Cressida Dick, who was still at the time the head of the Metropolitan Police, and raised the same issue. Um, and... I mean, the Sunday Times haven't given up on this either, and they keep pursuing it with the police and saying, what's going on? Late last year, I mean, this was in, I think, September 21. So it was over a year later, they said that they'd sent some file to the CPS, but they'd only talked to two individuals, um, neither of which was Charles. Um, and there's, there's still no news about what's going on. So it seems that they haven't even made any effort to interview Charles or as someone quipped, they haven't even sent him a questionnaire. Um, and it, they are just looking at Fawcett and someone else we don't know. So, which is, you know, it, it seems to me the evidence is a lot clearer than it was with the politicians whenever that was 15 years ago. Um, but the police just don't want to know. And what's the maximum sentence for this? I think it's two years. Also, it's a custodial sentence. So, yeah, yeah. And now, obviously, now Charlie the, and the clink. Now Charles is king. There is a yeah, as yet untested theory that he can't be prosecuted. But I, I mean, it's unlikely they would get down to that point anyway. But I mean, they ought to. They ought to be pursuing it. Um, Why couldn't he be prosecuted? Well, like the, the, the regicides during the during the English Civil War. Well, I mean, indeed. Was, but the the King Charles. So, first, sorry, just to clarify for our audience. Sorry, my apologies. There was a civil war in this country. It should be called a revolution. The king was beheaded, and that was that was the result of a legal process. Indeed, but it, it, uh, he was. My understanding is Charles I was um, prosecuted by Parliament, and um, the the theory, at least, is that the law is prosecuted in the name of the monarch, and therefore the monarch can't be prosecuted because they would be prosecuting himself. So it would have to be Parliament that would take it into their own hands to sort of you know deal with it. But I, it's a theory that I think would be questionable and certainly be open to challenge in the Supreme Court if that actually became an issue. No, if he openly shot someone, for example. The king can't be prosecuted. That's my. That's the theory, yeah. And the same was the theory with the Queen. But um, 
I mean, it's not unusual for heads of state elsewhere to be to have immunity, but of course you sure. can remove the head of state uh, from office and then prosecute. And they're not there until they die. And they're not there until they die, indeed. And they're not they're not necessarily um, surrounded with the same level of sycophancy, and that immunity can normally be removed. Um, but yeah, I mean, as I said, if if Charles sort of just turned around on a you know when he's out shooting and decided to shoot one of his friends dead, then in theory you couldn't prosecute him. But I think that in those circumstances. You know, uh, things would change, but there's a whole load of lesser crimes, such as you know, and including cash runners, uh, where you know that should be tested. Are there any other royals who could face, apart from obviously the obvious case of Prince Andrew? Have there any been any other sort of incidents where you well, you yourself have been involved? Perhaps other royals have uh, are not immune, and Princess Anne was quite a long time ago prosecuted under the Dangerous Dogs Act because her dog attacked someone's kid, I think. Um, but that's going back to the nineties. Um, I did actually report Prince Andrew for a completely different matter back about five years ago now, um, and what I called Gategate, which was where he deliberately rammed his vehicle into the gates at Great Windsor Park because they were supposed to automatically open for him and they didn't for whatever reason. And being a petulant, uh, arrogant man, he just decided to ram his Range Rover straight into the gates and caused £80,000 worth of damage. And someone saw it in, a, in the news, so I thought, well, that's criminal damage. So I reported them to the Thames Valley Police and, again, they didn't want to know. But this is taxpayer money. Yeah, it was Crown Estate uh, land, which is taxpayers' money, and, uh, and it's not a criminal offence. If I go down to the Crown Estate and I destroy it, I mean, I'm going to be charged with something. Yeah, surely. I, mean, I, I, I was tempted to go down and ram my, or well, I don't have a car, but I mean, I'd hire one and ram that into the gates and see whether they had took the same view. But I mean, it's um, as far as I know, Crown Estate picked up the bill, and that was the end of that. And the police didn't want to know. And it wasn't a road traffic accident; it was a deliberate act of vandalism, as far as the reports were concerned. Um, but. Yeah, the police uh, are very reluctant, I think, to to get involved in prosecuting them. Any other cases? You've got Anne, we've got Andrew, Charlie. No, I don't think so. I mean, they're, they're, you know, they're not actually a criminal gang as such, but I mean, I, I, there could well be things that they're getting up to, but I don't, I'm not aware of any other reports to the police. And um, But I mean, I think there's, there's plenty of, when I said they're corrupt, I think the, the abuse of public money is an abuse of public money, but it's all signed off and, you know, it's not illegal. Um, but it is uh, unethical. And if we look at, you know, the Nolan principles that people have been talking about recently with in relation to the current government and, you know, the, the sort of instinctive principles such as integrity and honesty and selflessness and whatever, um, I would say on all of those principles, the palace and the royal family fall well short. Uh, because if you were concerned about those values such as selflessness and honesty and transparency, then you wouldn't insist on being exempted from the Freedom of Information Act. You wouldn't spend hundreds of millions of pounds on your own homes and travel and all the rest of it. Um, and you wouldn't accept the money from the Dutchies because it's not yours. Um, so, And you wouldn't use your privileged position to lobby government ministers behind closed doors, insisting that, that lobbying doesn't see the light of day. So, you know, it's, um, that's what I mean by being corrupt. How much taxpayer money does the royal family get a year? Well, they will say that it's somewhere Take in away the of, uh, 85 um, million pounds, which is uh, about half of which is currently being spent on um, doing up Buckingham Palace. Although the, um, I was just reading in the private eye uh, that 
there are some there's some disquiet in Whitehall that uh, you know Charles now has no intention of using Buckingham Palace as a headquarters. So you know they're doing it up for reasons no one knows. But um, but it, that's the sovereign grant, which is um, about eighty five million pounds at the moment each year. Although they, they keep the reserve, and so last year they spent one hundred and one million pounds. Um, but we've calculated that the total figure is more like three hundred and forty five million pounds, um, and that includes the duchy. Um, Figures it includes the cost of security, which is at least one hundred million pounds. Um, for the you know, and that covers quite a lot of the family, including they've got something like two dozen homes to protect. Um, when they go around the country and open things and visit people and whatever, then there's a huge cost, which is usually picked up by the local police and local council, and that can be quite substantial. Is that for lesser royals too? Yeah, because there must be a cost benefit there. We so we have a lesser royal. It's actually not that big a deal, and it's costing us an absolute bucket load. Yeah, I mean, I, I imagine it costs more for the higher ones, uh, for the more senior ones, just because of the level of security. But I think that you know, we did FOIs. Um, the Queen did her jubilee tour in 2012, and she kicked it off going to Leicester, and that cost Leicester between the university, the council, and the police 180 thousand pounds for a four-hour visit. Um, there's a case going back way back to. to the, or something, Romsey uh, in the south of England, um, fairly small town. The Queen went there for, again, three hours, I think, and it cost them £60,000, and that came out of the town council and wiped out their reserves um, because they were expected to do all the crowd control stuff, the... Um, I did you know, do the whole process of uh, you know sort of risk assessment and road closures and provide staff and you know and they were told apparently in one venue to uh, replace the toilets which cost them five thousand um, pounds. So um, yeah, the the costs do ramp up quite quickly. And all if you add all that up, we had a ballpark figure of about twenty million pounds across all local councils for a year. Um, and there's various other sundry things, and also estimates of taxes unpaid and so on. So yeah, it's about three hundred and forty-five million pounds at least um, every year that we either spend or lose. And how much is it without the duchies? Because they could say, "Well, that's our own private estate." So how much of that is really taxpayer money? Well, um, it's three hundred million pounds, roughly, I suppose. But I mean, they they can argue it's their estate, but it's not. So if I'm not suggesting that, but I'm just thinking about the bottom line for the taxpayer over ten years is about. No, three billion. Yeah, but, I would, the but I would always include the Duchess because there's no real argument there. I mean, they will claim it's theirs, but the, the measure, the test for me is what happens when we get rid of the monarchy, and most of that spending would go, and the income for the Duchess would be rolled into the income for the uh, Crown Estate, and it would all go to the Treasury. So that would be a gain for us, plus a loss of all the expenses. If you look at the Irish president, for example, who is brilliant and you know widely liked and elected, uh, that costs about four million euros a year. So it's a fraction of the cost that we're spending on the worlds, and a large part of that cost is just on them living the lifestyles that they're accustomed to. It's a huge amount of money. I mean, that is £340 million a year over 10 years, £3.4 billion. That's a lot of cash. You know, that's a lot of schools and hospitals being built. Yeah, you could, um, we worked out, you can roughly pay about 13,000 teachers or nurses for that. And that's a lot of people, or police officers. I mean, we've lost about 20,000 police officers and they keep going on about recruiting more. But I mean, I think we're still down on where we were 10 years ago. And yet we, the amount of money it costs to replace most of them is being spent on you know, a dozen people. Counter-argument again would be that, well, 
fine, they do cost a lot of money, but actually in terms of the economics of it, which I think is a very weak argument for a, a constitutional system regardless, but anyway, on the economics of it, they're actually a net beneficiary because they contribute to tourism and people come to the UK and it helps brand Britain. And actually, they make us money, despite this extraordinary sum you just outlined. Why is that wrong? Well, it's, it's wrong on various levels. I mean, as you sort of alluded to, it's our constitution and we should base that on principles and values and what works constitutionally, not what people enjoy doing on their holiday, which is, doesn't make any sense. Um, it's wrong also because there's an odd logic that you know we have this public institution that make that makes money. That's great. It doesn't mean that we have to spend loads of money on those people. I mean, you could argue that the NHS makes money in the sense that it gets all over people back to the workplace and therefore boosts our economy. But no, we're not paying nurses enough. So wh where's the logic that we throw hundreds of millions of pounds and don't account for it properly just because of this institution making money? But the the main point is it's not true. Uh, the, it doesn't make any money. There's no evidence for that. Um, the tourism thing has been debunked. There's no evidence that having a monarchy brings more tourists in. Um, there's some claims that it has a broader impact on our economy in terms of investment or um, uh, trade and whatever. But again, there's, there just isn't any evidence to support it. Um, the largest figure that was put out was £500 million pounds, uh, from tourism as a result of having the monarchy. That was put out by Visit Britain in 2011, I think it was. And that was uh, debunked because it was just a... a what was their working? Was, their was their there working any? was to take all of the uh, ticket sales of every ticketed uh, heritage venue in the country that had the remotest connection to the world. Right. And I, I believe they included St. Paul's Cathedral, and that's, and that's you know which is a hugely iconic massively popular uh, venue in London to go and see as a tourist. Um, and the fact that royals got married there 30 years earlier um, isn't really a good argument for suggesting that they are the responsible for bringing this in. They claimed in the run-up to the 2011 wedding that they did a press release visit Britain. And they this said, is William and Kate. Yeah. So they said, they put out a press release, as everybody does. Well, you know, every company, every brand puts out all this rubbish around uh, trying to uh, get a piece of the um, rolling coverage about the, the wedding. So they put this thing out saying this is going to be a great boost for the for tourism. So we did an FOI request, Freedom of Information request, to their press office saying, can you, you, know, can you show us where, how you got to this? And part of what we got back was an email from their, press, from their research office saying you can't say that because it's not true. And their year-on-year -year comparisons from the 81 wedding and the 86 wedding showed a drop, not just year-on-year, -year, but for the same month of the year. Um, and after we gave that to the Guardian, and this big um, full page, they agreed to meet with us and talk about it, and and they accepted in private that you know there's no evidence that if you get rid of the monarchy, we lose tourism. So it's a it's a duff argument that makes no sense, and you know shouldn't be part of a conversation about our constitution. I mean, I've heard the argument that Versailles makes more money than Buckingham Palace, and I think again that might be purely anecdotal. But I mean, I'm sure it does. But I mean, you know, Buckingham Palace is only open two months of the year, and precisely. I've been there as a tourist, and it's not particularly interesting because it's so um, limited in what it can tell you because it's, the institution is still there. They don't want to give you a history of the the individuals or the royals. It's kind of you know, here's some artwork and here's some dresses and you know, here's some uh, they had a exhibition of photos of the Queen. Okay, I've seen the Queen before, but I mean, where, where's the actual history? Um, 
and it tells you how many uh, candlesticks and glasses and chairs and tables they have in the building, but nothing, nothing much else. And it's just not that interesting. But you don't have to go over to France to get a good comparison. If you look at Tower of London, which they haven't been in for a very long time, that's far more popular, far more profitable. And as far as I'm aware, it, it pays for itself through ticket sales. Could, could we go as far to say as getting rid of the monarchy would actually increase tourism then? Because, you know, you'd have more people at Buckingham Palace because it would be more of an attraction yeah, because in, it would actually be open. Insofar as it would make any difference at all, yeah. I mean, that £500 million figure, you know, people say, think, oh, it's a huge amount of money. It's nothing. It's, it's like 0.001% of our GDP. So, you know, it's less than the margin of error of a calculating GDP. And I worked out, it's, you know, if, if you were looking for £25,000 for... Um, uh, a deposit on your house, and as a way of helping you, I offered you two pound fifty. That's the equivalent of how much impact it makes. It's nothing, you know. You wouldn't notice it if I gave you gave it to you or didn't. So it it's yeah. I don't think I think London would probably benefit from having the palace opened up. My, what I would do with it is turn it into a world class museum and gallery, mm. pedestrianise the Mall and Constitution Hill, which goes down the side of uh, the palace, and open up the whole area as a kind of a a place to you know. Um, exhibit and celebrate our history and our, including the warts and all sort of stuff about the monarchy but also our democracy and all the fights that it took to, to get to a republic so I think that would be far more interesting than this rather dull looking building that's closed much of the year It's so inspiring that's such an inspiring vision I think it's a good idea Yeah it's a really good idea And there's, so- some, there's some other beautiful buildings down there as well I mean you've got the Commonwealth headquarters down there and you've got Clarence House and uh, St James's Palace which is just on the corner Somerset House does that belong to them or is it a separate entity? I don't know I'm not sure So you, your proposal is to turn the mile into basically a giant LTN low yes, traffic neighbourhood Absolutely yeah I think, I, I think it'd be amazing and you know you could have it all the way from Trafalgar Square all the way down to the palace and leave all the gates open so you can go all the way through and through the courtyard you know, the quadrant the where the prime ministers uh, are seen going um all the way through to the gardens um and uh, yeah i think it'll be a pretty impressive sight so let's go through some more arguments for the monarchy which you're going to debunk stability britain is this uniquely stable country we never had the rise of fascism we're not prone to political extremes i mean i don't buy any of this but fine let's just let's just repeat these arguments um Partly, yes, because of our electoral system, that's equally dysfunctional, but part clap for a moment, but partly because we have this constitutional monarch who sits above politics. So actually, you would never get something like what you get in Germany in the 30s or Italy in the 20s. Yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't stack up. I mean, you only have to, people say, look at Germany. And, and Churchill is quoted as saying, look, you know, if, if Germany had kept the Kaiser, they wouldn't have had Hitler. But he's conveniently ignoring Italy, where Mussolini was put on the, uh, given the job um, to head the government by the king, who then sat there and let him, you know, 20 years he's on the throne all the way through to the end of Mussolini's reign and did nothing. So monarchies are of no use whatsoever because the monarch's first duty is to, to protect the monarchy and they will uh, make accommodations for whatever dictator they have to make accommodations for. The German Kaiser who lived in the Netherlands after the First World War, after being deposed, would often write to Hitler. He was no fan of Hitler, I should say that, but he would write to Hitler trying to get his family put back on the throne with Hitler still as Chancellor. So he's certainly well, I didn't know that. prepared to accommodate Hitler, even if he wasn't. I mean, he thought he was a horrendous man, but not to the point that he wouldn't, you know, allow himself to be accommodated uh, for the restoration of the German monarchy. And, you know, you look at the Greek 
um, monarchy. They had a republic and the Greek king went along with a rigged plebiscite restoration of the monarchy just before the Second World War and then sat back and let a um, fascist take over. Um, his nephew became king after the war and was, I mean, he, he sort of tried to avoid the coup in the 60s, but completely failed. Um, and so Greeks, you know, fell under the control of the generals, um, who subsequently got rid of the monarchy. Um, and when they were democracy again, the Greeks had a referendum and said, yeah, we don't want that again because it didn't work. Um, and if you look at places like Cambodia and Thailand, their monarchs have been absolutely catastrophic in terms of uh, protecting democracy or people's rights. You know, they are very much part of those um, networks of dictatorship and kleptocracy that have, uh, you know, caused all sorts of misery in those countries. So, um, yeah, monarchies are not good at protecting anything. The fact that we have been stable has been a result of any number of different forces. I mean, when we say we've been stable, obviously we had 40 years of political violence um, in which 3,000 people died. So to the extent to which we are stable, I mean, the Westminster government- You're talking about them. Ireland? Yeah. Also, can I just say, also a civil war, right? Like you have, a, you, have a, you have the United Kingdom, which includes the whole of the island of Ireland, and a huge chunk of it breaks away in what is a, is, yeah. is a seditious civil war. Like that is not- The fact this isn't taught as a civil war, I just find so strange. Yes. We've had hundreds of years of stability. It's like- Indeed. And I, 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 was, I can't remember where I read this. I was reading some history of sort of early 20th century, pre-First World War, and there was quite a lot of worry that that would blow up into a wider civil war across the UK. And it was the First World War that sort of um, uh, sort of dispersed that, that threat. But, um, but yeah, there's been a lot of violence there. And then obviously we've got 50% of Scots want to break away. You know, there's a, a lot of people in Wales that... Um, the one to separate. So it's not exactly a unified, um, and at the moment, even in Westminster, it's not particularly stable. So it's it's a whole load of things. But um, the monarchy doesn't help any of this. It doesn't contribute to the stability. What it does do is centralise power in Downing Street. Um, and it certainly doesn't provide us with a monarch who can protect us or defend the constitution. So last one. We've rebutted the economics. We've rebutted the stability. I think you've made a pretty good argument in regards to, to corruption. Tradition, which is, I suppose, less rational. This is the thing that defines Britain. We are a monarchy. Dieu a mon droit, which is, you know, that's, that's, that's about the right of the, the king or the queen, not the right of any of us. Uh, people don't seem to get that. So, so what's the argument there? If somebody likes tradition and it's traditional to have a, a monarch in the UK, how do you, how do you say, hey, well, actually, you're wrong? Well, I mean, I can't remember who, who it was that said it, but um, they said that democracy is, as tradition is the democracy of the dead. And it's kind of this idea that decisions made by people who died 200 years ago should be sacrosanct and, and not challenged. And that's all that we're saying, because traditions have all been invented by someone at some point, and most of them not that long ago. Um, and so why should we be any more constrained to change things than, than they were? You know, they didn't feel the need to stick with what they had. They changed it when they invented things like all the honours, for example. Um, when, when were honours invented? Well, a lot of them 
most of the, I mean, the OBE and the CBE and all mm-hmm. that was 1917. So very recent. I mean, it's, it's more recent than the invention of powered flights. And yet people talk about it as if it's some kind of ancient tradition. So some of the- Why 1917? Sorry, just like literally one year away from the end of the First World War. Why then? I think it was part of the general, it was the same year that they changed their name from Saxe-Coburg-Gotha to Windsor. And I think it was part of the general sort of uh, wanting to ingratiate themselves with the wider public. I think there was a sense that there was this sort of, not quite a revolution, but there was certainly a social shift caused by the First World War and the, you know, equalization uh, of everybody dying together, you know, and the huge trauma that it caused. They, they were sort of... Um, aware that they needed to do something. And if we believe, uh, you know, their sort of version of it, that they wanted to genuinely recognize and honor people who had done exceptional things beyond those who were already getting sort of medals, military medals, like the Victoria Cross, for example. But I mean, you know, the change in the guard dates back to, I think, uh, Victoria or maybe um, William the Fourth, who was just before Victoria, so it's, it's it's old, but it's not that old, you know. And all these things have been invented and reinvented and all the rest of it. Mm. Um, and there's no reason why we can't reinvent things as well. That's the tradition is that we keep creating new traditions. But I'd say that the bigger, better argument is that we have a whole load of better traditions, such as fighting for democracy, such as you know fighting for people's rights, whether it's workers' rights, voting rights, you know, suffrage. So the the tradition of you know whether it's the toll button martyrs or the suffragettes or the gay rights movement, um, Black Lives Matter, those movements and what they represent are traditions which we should be uh, symbolising and representing in our institutions, not the tradition of feudal kings and aristocrats. I think those a lot. Of, if a tradition is good, fine, keep it. If it's important, keep it. But if it's there to try and sustain a structure of power and privilege. Get rid of it. Mm. I think it was Macmillan that said this, and I'm probably wrong. I think it was Macmillan about conservatism should conserve the good things and not conserve the bad things. You know, like you say, yeah. there are good and bad traditions, right? Just because something is a tradition, you know, ancestor, ancestor worship was a tradition. I mean, it's indeed. I mean, there's, there's all sorts of things being traditions, and um, you know. It, it, you shouldn't sort of do a kind of, you know, you don't want to go the other way and have a kind of year zero thing where you just throw everything out and try and reinvent things because they're part of human life. They're part of our, you know, we, we grow up with things and we want to, we want our world to feel familiar and all the rest of it. But if something is actually a problem, then get rid of it. And that's part of how societies evolve. You know, and every generation has to make its own decisions about what it keeps and what it gets rid of. Um, and... You know, I'm sure up until the late 18th century, French royalists would have said this is tradition. Um, you know, now they've got 200 years tradition of being a republic. Um, and I think that if we are talking about having a history that we're proud of and which we want to celebrate, I think that, you know, after a few decades of being a republic, that's going to be uh, something which we will celebrate because it's something which we did, um, which we chose to do. And on the day that we do become a republic, it's going to be a huge global event. Um, you know, everyone will be sitting there, wow, the British, you know, the least likely country to do this, have stood up and got rid of the monarchy. Um, that's going to be a huge moment. And that's going to be something which we will then celebrate every every year from then on. I love this. So this, uh, this complete inversion of the common sense, you know, like it makes us money. Or actually, no, maybe we could make more money from tourism if we didn't have a monarchy. Oh, actually, when Queen Elizabeth died, 
millions of billions of people, apparently that's complete nonsense, obviously, not billions of people, their eyes were on the UK. Well, actually, there'd be far more attention. And, you know, brand Britain would benefit from being a republic. My, my favourite one as well, actually, is um, the crown jewels. Yeah. A lot of people don't know this, but, you know, the crown jewels as we know them are, are only from the glorious revolution. They're from the 1680s onwards because Cromwell melted, you know, crown jewels 1.0. Which I, I find I, quite I think, amusing. I think there's one item that predates him that was saved somewhere. But yeah, it's all fairly recent. What's that? There's one crown, isn't it? That's like a this crown. I think it's like a spoon or something. A spoon? <laughs> something like that. I can't really remember. But I. But yeah, it's all, a lot of this is very new. I mean, a lot of it is Victorian times, you know. A lot of the monarchy that we know and, and recognise is Victorian or even Edwardian, which is only, you know, 110 years ago. So, Why a spoon? Why was a spoon saved? Do you have any idea? No, I, don't, I really don't know. It might not have been. I, this is what I think. Uh, I read somewhere or heard somewhere, but I mean, yeah, there's not much of it left. It's all very new, well, relatively new. And, you know, a lot of it comes from Victorian times. Um, you know, a lot of it was stolen from various parts of the empire. Uh, so, and, and yeah, I mean, it is what it is, but um, I don't get too excited by the crown jewels. There's one, there's a crown, isn't there? I think one of the oldest existing crowns is like the, um, uh, it was a Frankish crown or something. I think it goes like eight, nine hundred AD, maybe 1000 AD, and it ended up in the crown jewels of the Austro-Habsburg Empire. Right. You think if, if there's something that lasted that long and in the last century that stopped being, you know, Austro-Hungarian Empire obviously collapsed and there's no, they're both republics, whatever you think about Victor Orban, if something that long and quote unquote traditional can sort of come to an end, then I presume, you know, a 300 year old monarchy can too. Well, I mean, you know, this is the thing is it, it will always be there as part of our history. You know, we won't lose the history. You know, we won't lose the palaces or the castles. It will all be there and the crown jewels will still be there. I mean, whether or not we give some of it back, I don't know. But, uh, you know, you can still do all that. I mean, at the moment you go to the Tower of London, which is not a, an actual royal residence. I haven't lived there for a very long time. Um, to go and see the crown jewels, it's just a museum. You know, and I went there and I took my nephews there last year and... I, was, I hadn't seen the crown jewels for a very long time. I wasn't massively impressed. I mean, yeah, obviously very expensive, um, lots of security, but it, it looked an awful lot like bling and uh, not, you know, I just thought there's something very odd and childish about these jewels and the crowns that it's, it very goes back to hundreds of years ago when these precious metals meant something. So dressing yourself up in them mm. was a sign of power and status and wealth more than anything. It's like, you know, I can buy you whatever you want if you go and fight my wars for me, that sort of thing. Um, but nowadays it just looks slightly ridiculous. Prince Harry, uh, you've mentioned a while ago that Charles and William can be disposed to being quite um, petulant, childish, I suppose is a better word as well. Um, throw tantrums, they like to get what they want. Is Harry a bit different? Well, I, I, I mean, I think he's sort of admitted that he's not that different. I mean, I think they've all grown up in the same weird world. Um, I think he is different only in the sense that he's obviously made that journey and left. Um, and I think that obviously Meghan Markle's probably had a, an influence on him. I think... I this is just my sort of pop psychology, and I don't have any particular view on Harry as such. But I th I think that um, he's very much a product of his mother's upbringing, and more importantly, the loss of his mother and what happened afterwards. I think he's um, someone who is who has struggled to sort of come to terms with that, and has also, I think, one of the things, one of the awful things, really, I think that's come out of spare is that he was always made to feel second fiddle to his brother. Um, 
and that you know any family can sort of have that sibling rivalry and you know the, the older one might get treated differently or whatever but on the whole i think most good parents would try and treat their kids equally and, and make sure they all have a good upbringing but he was very clearly told you know you are less important than your brother because he's going to be king and i think that is pretty awful as well and that seems to have um i think that comes out of what he said uh recently so yeah i think he's different i think that the you know some of that um petulant behavior comes through but also i think he's kind of understood that as well and um you know he's sort of talked about the the racist language he's used in the past and sort of admitted that you know this was kind of this came out of the world in which he grew up um so he sort of had a bit of an insight into that and a bit of a reflection on it but you know i don't know him well enough to know whether you know exactly how different he is from his brother but he, i mean i can't imagine they'd be that different how big a crisis for the royal family is spare i mean this is the this is the most successful work of non-fiction ever you know it's beaten obama in the first week it's it's broken all the records in terms of uk us canada sales is this sort of unprecedented for the royals do you think where does it where does it sit in in the context of crises for the windsors I think it's very damaging for all sorts of reasons. I mean, I think the, the timing and the fact that the Queen has died, you know, she was their heat shield. She protected them from an awful lot, not least because people could always sort of set her to one side and say, she's wonderful, perfect, never puts her foot wrong. It's the princes, they're a bit of a problem, etc. And then even with Charles, oh, well, it'll be different when he's king. But now he is king, and we have someone that people are not deferential to as king, uh, and then this blows them. I think also The Crown, the Netflix series, doesn't help as well because it's reminded a lot of people or told a lot of people that didn't know of their previous sort of generations of divorces and affairs and you know, all the intrigues and whatever. And the monarchy survives on the mystery. You know, there's um, Walter Badger that said, you know, don't let the light in on the magic, which is a, kind of an old way of saying, you know, believe the spin and the hype. Don't Don't dig into exactly what's going on behind closed doors. But those, you know, light is being shed on the on what goes on behind closed doors, and um, and it's not good. So it's only going to be damaging to them. Now, how damaging and how to, to what extent things unravel for them is is difficult to say because they have a very very well resourced PR machine. They have uh, quite a lot of leverage with the media, particularly the broadcasters, and you know they they have all these big set piece events. Um, but even now, we've seen a sharp drop in support for the monarchy. So from 75 to 55% um, at the extremes, we got one poll just before Christmas put support for abolition up um, at 31%, which is um, unusual. Uh, the net approval rating is dropped by about 25%. Um, and even there was a question asked, I think it was YouGov just last week or the week before, where they said, um, are you proud of the monarchy? And those saying they were proud of it, it dropped to forty-three percent. Wow, which is extraordinary. That's you know? really interesting. And one of the things, one of the things we noticed is when, when we do the yes, no, do you want to have an elected head of state or monarchy, or do you want to keep the monarchy or abolish the monarchy? Fifteen percent say they don't know. Now those are people that clearly don't like the monarchy that much anymore. Otherwise, they would be saying keep it, but they haven't quite engaged with the issue of what comes next, so they don't know. Um, so. I think that there is a big opportunity to get the debate going, get people talking about it, understand what the alternative is, which is really simple and democratic. And, and then I think we'll start to see um, opinion shift sharper, which is also why I think that if, for example, Australia went down that road or other Commonwealth countries, um, it will help 
uh, as a kind of a guide of that's what it looks like when you get rid of it, you know, and it looks really good. Sticking on the polling for a second, because I do want to talk about Australia. Um, this morning, uh, well, late last night, so obviously the other side of the world, we had the news that Australia's currency won't have King Charles's head on it, which I think is a big statement of intent, I think, for Republicans in that country. Yeah. But on the polling, I mean, Ipsos Mori had um, Prince Harry down eight points after the publication of Spare. So his personal approval ratings took a massive hit. And this is something the whole media talked about, right? What they failed to mention is that even the most popular people within the institution, which is um, Harry and Kate, they also went down eight. And Charles isn't particularly popular anyway. So if you're, I don't quite get this argument that they make, but if you're a Republican and Harry is basically taking a torch to the credibility of, of the House of Windsor, and he's also undermining his own sort of brand too. As a Republican, why would I care? I don't quite get it. So it does seem to me like a really signal moment. And again, going back to the Ipsos Mori thing, I can't remember the precise question, but it was like, in the future, would, would you like it to be abolished or not exist? It wasn't like, should we abolish the monarchy? It was a roundabout way of asking it. And the people that said yes was about 25%. And that was an increase since the publication of Spare of 3%. Just in a month, yeah. and I think in in the space of seven or eight years, it was an increase of ten percent, which is just really extraordinary. And then finally, on on and of course these things go up and down, but that is I think quite big on Gen Z, which it should be said is like not a huge number of people. It's you know people who are eighteen to twenty four, younger people. Um, they were um, actually in support of the monarchy until several years ago. And then you've seen a massive, massive surge towards republicanism amongst that age cohort, a bit like you see with Scottish independence, et cetera, et cetera, very much at odds with the kind of the common sense that the media is telling us about. Yeah. I mean, the, the Gen Z thing, I mean, it's, it, there was a poll that even not just under 25s, but under 35s mm. had shifted away from the monarchy by quite significant numbers. And uh, when this first came out, it was 2018 that was the, it was the benchmark, which was the year that Harry and Meghan got married and where... It was something like 40% of young people were in favor, 30% wanted to get rid of it, and it completely flipped the other way within four years. And of course, in those four years, you've had the Oprah interview, Harry and Meghan leaving, and all the accusations around that. You've also had things like Black Lives Matter, Me Too, and everything else. And I think that there is a kind of the, you know, the zeitgeist is of all of these, um, what some people might call woke issues, but I mean, which a phrase I, I hate, but I mean, it's an easy short term. You know, all of this has come up and I think it's driving a wedge on this particular issue of the monarchy between younger and older sure. people. Um, and I think that's more stark now than it's ever been before. But I mean, you, you say it goes up and down and it, and it might go back um, the other way, but I, there's quite a lot of polling asking different types of questions, including the ones like you said about the individual royals, but the the pattern, as far as I can see, across the board is going against them. So it's a matter of whether we can keep it, uh, keep pushing it against them. And one of the things I do think is the big challenge for us is to to get people talking about the alternative and to engage with it beyond the soap opera. And it's not just about, do you like William or Harry? It's about, there are serious issues here, let's get rid of it. And, you know, it's not that difficult. Finally on Harry, I mean, this is why I find him such an intriguing character, is that what him and Meghan wanted, from what they seem to say, and there's obviously so many PR plays at work, they wanted like an intersectional monarchy. 
it just seems so strange that like they're talking in this very egalitarian meritocratic language you know anyone can marry you know the brother to the future king of the united kingdom just it's completely absurd is that your read on it do you think there's yeah, kind of big contradiction I mean, there is, there is a contradiction in the way they talk about this i mean he was asked in these interviews after the spur came out that um you know do you still believe in the monarchy and he said yes and i think that's i mean i can understand why he would say that um because that's been his world but i think that is um that undermines him a bit and i think that to some extent, the fact that they kept the titles when they first announced they were leaving, and they sort of tried to do this half in, half out thing, and were told, "No, you've got to, you know, either you stay or you go." But they wanted to keep the titles, and there was a sense that they wanted to, the monarchy on their terms. And I would say, "Well, you can't have the monarchy at all. You shouldn't have it at all. And if you're going to go away, and if you're going to talk about all these egalitarian issues or you know, race or whatever, then you have to go the full journey all the way to the end and say, look, the monarchy makes no sense.'" So it, it sounds a little bit um, naive, best self-serving at worst. But I, I just, yeah, I, there was a. But I think that, that inherent contradiction is as much a product of how he's upbringing. It's quite a big leap, um, and whether he takes that final step, I don't know. I think it's unlikely. I do hope so. I, I hope he's be, joining yeah. you on a protest in 10 years' time. Well, that would be great. I mean, maybe he's, there's speculation he'll go to the coronation in uh, in May, so maybe he'll uh, stop off and pick up one of our banners, but uh, that would make headlines. But, I, uh, yeah, I mean, I would hope so, but who knows? I, I, Meghan Markle's an interesting one because obviously she's American. Uh, and I think Americans have a very odd, peculiar idea of our monarchy, um, but none of them would want it in their country. And... Uh, you would think that she would be more instinctively Republican, as in, you know, not American Republican, but uh, instinctively sort of, you know, anti-monarchy, as it were. But, um, but yeah, she seems to have bought into it all as well. But, um, uh, yeah, it's complicated one. Australia and Canada. Okay, I just want to talk about these two because I think, like you said, there's a really, there's a really strong argument to say that if these two large Anglophone countries quite prominent in our in our globalized anglophone culture if they became republics i think that would be a massive massive thing do you think that australia and canada will be republics in our lifetime i mean it's a very broad term that could be a very long time within a generation let's say t- t- 20 years is that possible yeah australia yes canada probably i mean i think that over the last 5 years support for the monarchy in canada has collapsed so it's well below 50% now um why is that? I think it's a combination of things. I think it's generational. I think it's that they've had a few issues with their governor general, which has thrown the spotlight on it. So they had a Steve, um, is it Stephen Harper, the Conservative Prime Minister, use the governor general to suspend Parliament when they um, to avoid a confidence vote back in two thousand nine, and then they had a, a governor general who had to resign for accusations of uh, bullying. I think um, so. It's kind of thrown the spotlight on it a bit, and I think that. You know, all the issues that we're also hearing about, such as, you know, Meghan Markle and Harry and, and all the rest of it, um, they're also hearing about. So I think there's a, a, a number of things going on there. Um, it's quite difficult for them to get rid of the monarchy, though, isn't it? Yes, they, I was going to say that they, they have to have agreement of all of the provinces. But it, the Republican movement there said it's actually not as difficult as, as uh, is made out, but uh, there has to be a path to, to doing that. And I think they can get there. Um, Australia is not easy uh, mathematically because they need to get a majority of the states uh, to vote for it, plus a majority across Australia, and they fell well short last time. But 
Uh, and the, the majority now in the polling is not unassailable, um, so there's no guarantee that uh, that they'll win it if they ran another referendum now. But you know, the current government is quite clearly pro-republic, and they have a republic minister for the first time. Uh, the this is Alban- Albanese is a Republican, right? He's a Republican, and he's very open and clear about that in a way that the previous um, two Labour prime ministers were not. I mean, they were Republican, but they sort of kicked it into the long grass and didn't want to do anything about it. Um, but he's, he, yeah, so he's been very clear about it, and they've appointed a minister of, of the Republic. Um, and then, as you said, they've now introduced these new $5 notes without trials on them. Um, so... Which has clearly whipped up the debate again. You know, the constitutional monarchists are getting upset and jumping up and down about it. But um, no, so it's uh, they could lose it. But I think that you know, if they play the cards right and are sensible about it and do a good job, that they can win it. And I think that they will do it differently to last time. They they're likely to have a in principle plebiscite, non-binding plebiscite. Do you want to? remove the monarch as the head of state and become an Australian republic. Um, and if that gets through, then um, have a binding referendum, which is more likely to succeed. What do you think it says about the sort of the national self-esteem of the British that we might be the last people in the Anglophone world of this former empire that are lumbered, I should say actually, the English, mm that we're the last people that are lumbered with this institution. You know, the Australians don't want it, the Canadians don't want it, the Scots and um, the Welsh don't want it, but the English will remain, let's say, infatuated with it for another decade or two at least. What, what does that say about the English nation? Well, it's hard to say. I mean, I, I don't know that we're as infatuated as people like to think. I Some think. people are, right? Some there's people a, there's are. a big Absolutely. chunk of, but it's, of English civil society, yeah. which is, we can talk about the media, we'll talk about that in a moment, and it, clearly it's a huge variable, but some pe- millions of people feel passionately about the monarchy. Yes, and I think that um, there will always be those people. I mean, even when we get rid of it, they'll still be there sort of weeping into their uh, souvenir cups of tea. But um, the... I don't know. It's hard to say what it says. I, I, I'm loath to sort of say anything about the English psyche as a whole because I, I just think that it's not as wedded to the royals as people think. I think that a lot of people, possibly a majority, are fairly indifferent. And it's kind of this uh, this quote from Thomas Paine who said, you know, a long habit of not thinking a thing wrong gives the impression of it being right. And so people just haven't really thought about it that much. I mean, if you look at the polling, going back to what we were saying before about the polling, there's other polling which we've done about how interested you are in uh, the royals. Now, at the Jubilee just last year, Queen's uh, 70th um, Jubilee, 14% were going to celebrate. And we did polling for the two big weddings, so William and Harry, and it was something like 75 or 66% not interested. Now, it's probably weighted slightly. Those interest, those who are interested is probably leaning towards England and probably the southeast. And we were down protesting at the Jubilee in 2012, and someone commented that the, the crowds of royalists waving their flags in the middle of London, it didn't look like a London crowd. It looked like a home counties crowd who come in for the day, you know. And um, so I think that there is a strong body of uh, people who are obsessed and fascinated, but I think that it is uh, not reflective of the rest of us. It's like the it's like the, the 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 coffin thing when you had about a quarter of a million people go through Westminster Abbey saying, you know, farewell to the Queen. It was a closed casket. 
you're literally walking, you're walking. I try to get into the minds of these people, right? But it's a closed casket. You're just walking past a wooden box. I mean, I don't, yeah. quarter of a million people went, Graham. That does sense, that does say something. And I think that's deeply irrational. Obviously they don't. I think that's deeply irrational, almost inexplicable to stand in a queue for 18 hours to do that. Of course, a million people did it. Yeah, but I mean, I, uh, what I say again, I mean, there, there is a body of, I mean, you know, it's a quarter of a million people, yes, but I mean, there's 65 million people in the country. And if a substantial minority are like that, then yeah, you can get a quarter of a million people. But there were people that did get in the minds of these people. It's like psychologists, you know, sort of people who study in social, um, people who study the sociology of crowds and things. They went down and interviewed them and did studies of this queue. And uh, some interesting stuff that came out of it, which is that, you know, a lot of people weren't really there because they were in love with the Queen and grieving or mourning or anything like that. It was just something that you want to be part of. You wanted to, you know, be able to tell your kids, yes, I was there, or you just wanted to be part of something that you saw everybody else being a part of. Um, and it was to some extent manufactured as well, because as lots of people were saying, you didn't, you know, in this day and age, you could have just gone online and sort of done a... Uh, uh, electronic queue where you, you know your phone sort of lights up and says right notification it's now your turn to go in you know so there's a bit of manufactured uh queuing but um yeah i'm not saying that there isn't a large body of people that are like that but again those people represent a minority you know most people are not remotely interested in going and queuing at uh, the queen's coffin or even going down and watching the coronation I love that. The idea of like the supreme political spectacle in this country being a queue, you know, in most countries it'd be a <laughs> rally very, or, yeah, you know. very British, yeah. But um, it's slightly absurd. But, I, but again, it's, it's one of those things that, you know, we haven't seen the death of a monarch for, you know, 70 odd years. So is I guess people thought, well, you know, it's not going to come around again for another 20 or 30 years. So something to do. So you touched upon the media. Um, and the role they play in, in manufacturing consent for what people think they think. It's not often what people think because they haven't actually thought about it, but what people think they think about the monarchy and the implausibility of a republic or an alternative. How big a role does the media play in terms of the popularity of the monarchy? Well, I think obviously most of what everybody sees about the monarchy goes through the media, so quite a substantial role. Um, there's no argument as to whether that is sort of deliberate on the part of the media or you know, to what extent there's collusion with the royals and all the rest of it. But of course, most people only see it through the, the lens of the way it's reported. And a lot of that is, you know, the journalists themselves and the press and whatever are also repeating what they've heard, aren't really taking it that seriously because it's more interested in, you know, what dresses they wear, what charities they're visiting and whatever. Um, and But they will... No, I met um, a former royal correspondent who was uh, doing the job back in the 80s, um, and I told him what I did, and he said, I wish you around when I was doing it, because then we would have had other people to talk to about this and, and get some kind of conflict and, and you know more interesting stories. So there is an appetite for that uh, kind of thing. But, um, but there is a unhealthy relationship between the institution of the monarchy and the media, and with the press, I mean, the press is free press. They can do what they want um, uh, and say what they want if they want to support the monarchy. But there is still a carrot and stick relationship where they will uh, give or refuse access, um, depending on what sort of coverage they get from the relevant paper. And that um, causes a, a degree of self-censorship. Um, and then there is um, the BBC, to some extent, the other broadcasters, but the BBC, who 
directly and continuously collude with them in terms of broadcasting their big events, who have been absolutely dreadful in terms of reflecting the diversity of opinion, who uh, always project these big things as being universally liked and celebrated and all the rest of it. Um, and they, I mean, they've been recently talking about their um, how they deal with bias on various other issues like the economy and so on. Um, this is the one they need to deal with, in my view, um, more urgently than anything else because they fail on it so completely and comprehensively. You know, they just don't get it right at all. I suppose how can they? Because they they operate with a charter. It's a royal charter. Like the BBC, it's like so many parts of the British apparatus, it literally can't exist without... That, that, it's a bit different to the economy because I obviously agree with you, you know, the misreporting around austerity and so on and so forth. Yeah. And there's been, for whatever, I have many criticisms of the BBC. Clearly that shows it's at least capable of introspection and improvement, right? The, yeah. the thing about the economics reporting. I, I wonder, is that plausible with the monarchy stuff just purely because of but the royal how charter, it functions? The Royal Charter is a political thing. It's not a, it was, it's something which is given by, you know, it just means it's been agreed through the Privy Council, which is a council of ministers. So it's not, it doesn't really make a lot of difference. Um, and in the same way, you know, they, the government essentially decides the fate of the BBC, and yet they're expected to be impartial on political uh, commentary and reporting, which, you know, on the whole, I think they probably are. But I mean, they, they often get criticised for not being, um, and have been often criticised for being too uh, timid in the face of whichever government happens to be. You know, they had this accusation under Blair as well as under the current government. But, um, but the, the level of failure and collusion, I think, is is far greater here. They just don't make much of an effort. You don't get the sense from watching BBC coverage that there is any real body of opposition. And the they take the, you know, let's say it's um, 66% for the monarchy. They assume that that is 66% of people who are like Jacob Rees-Mogg with the monarchy, you know, that love it and think the, the monarch is amazing and really believe the whole thing, rather than this much more interesting, complex picture of what people feel about it. Um, and they, uh, there are various examples where we have you know, tried to challenge them on this, and they just don't really engage with it at all. They, they have a particular way of thinking about it, um, and they don't, for whatever reason, they don't want to move away from that. And it, it, the, the upshot is a incredibly distorted picture of the way in which the public view the monarchy and the monarchy itself. What's your relationship like with the BBC? Do you, do you, of all the media outlets, do you think, oh, God, they're not going to give us a fair crack of the whip? Well, the, I mean, we, we're on every now and again. I usually have to um, chase them. And I, you know, I, a lot of it comes down to individual producers, editors, journalists, whatever. Um, it's very hit and miss depending on what the issue is and what the day is. And um, the week after... Uh, the Queen died, they just didn't want to know. And I think that, and they would have said, well, you know, the Queen's died, it's not a time to talk about it. And it's like, well, it's a hereditary monarchy, so you can't do that. You can't say we want a hereditary monarchy, which is based on births, deaths, and marriages, and therefore the change of monarch is when she dies, and then say, well, we can't talk about it. That's what we talk about, and that's when we talk about it. Not least because it's also the accession of Charles, but they just didn't want to know. And how did that compare to people like Sky or Channel 4? Because I know they're much smaller, but... I in my personal experience, for instance, during the Corbyn years with with, with Labour Party reporting, Sky weren't perfect, yeah. and I, I think Channel Four just their editorial line is generally a bit more distinctly liberal slash left wing, which is that's why the Tories don't like them. Yeah. 
but Sky at the point at that point was owned by Rupert Murdoch at that yeah. point. But I actually felt they gave a fairer crack of the whip to um, arguments you wouldn't often hear. Yeah, I mean, I I, I, I agree. I think that I mean, even to some extent, ITV again, it comes down to the individual journalists and editors and producers. But um, I've often had uh, an easier time of just getting the story right or getting, uh, you know, sort of engaging with the journalists with Sky, ITV, Channel 5 News as well. Um, and uh, Channel 4 News tends not to get into the issue quite so much anyway, um, certainly on the trivial stuff. Um, but, yeah, there's something – I mean, back at the time, I think it was the wedding 2011 Today program came phoned me up and said – can you come on and tell us about, you know, we want to talk about how this is a really bad time for Republicans because everyone's celebrating the wedding. And I, said, <laughs> and I said, well, actually, it's a really good time for us because we're getting loads of interviews and we're getting you know, thousands of pounds coming in, loads of new members, and the invitation was withdrawn because I wasn't prepared to do what they wanted. No. So instead, they went to um, Sue Townsend who wrote something about sort of, oh, you know, this is really awful, just keep our heads down and get an actor to read it out, which is not journalism, you know. But that presented that's propaganda. Yeah, indeed. So, and this is they wrote to, and again, it's a vast network, a corporation. But they were doing. Of course, a piece. but today program is their flagship radio show. Yeah, and it's. I mean, they they've had. You know, was it last year? I think about a year ago. They had Jonathan this some um, cash for honors thing. They had Jonathan Dimbleby come on. Who? Is it John, yeah, Jonathan Dimbleby. He was a close personal friend of Charles to interview him about the cash runners Who said, "Oh no, beggars belief that Charles would have known anything about it." Of course, it's not possibly right. Um, and but you know, where was the where was the counter view? And I, there was a case in uh, 2012 for the Jubilee. They were doing a thing with um, oh Gary Barlow. Um, where he was going around the Commonwealth. And uh, basically, they were talking to people in various different Commonwealth countries. And they emailed some Australian Republicans. And they said, we want to talk to people who want an Australian Republic. But then they said, we don't want to hear a bad word about the Queen. We don't want to hear anything that is critical of her. So these Australian Republicans who we were in touch with anyway, they forwarded the email to us. And we press released it and said, what the hell are you doing? But um, it didn't change there. Their view. They promised us in 2012. We had a meeting with them, you know, senior executives, and they said, "Well, we try and achieve balance over time." You know, so now it's 11 years later. So I'm about to write another. I'm about to write another letter to them and saying, "You know, you've now had 11 years. So when when is this? You know, you've got a lot of balance to make up for. So can we sort of have maybe six solid weeks of pro-Republican yeah. coverage to make up for it?" But um, yeah, and again, a lot of it is cultural. But I mean, David Dimbleby was uh, gave a lecture last year. I think it was after the funeral, and he was involved in the funeral. But he was saying that you know he was criticising the BBC for being too close to the royal family. And when they were filming the funeral, the um, they were getting minute by minute emails coming from the palace saying. Uh, that bit of footage you can't use again. That bit of footage wow. don't show again. You know, and the BBC just goes along with them. Wow! You know, say so, that is not a public service broadcaster. No, that is not a public service broadcaster. Yeah. Does not behave like that. No, indeed. Uh, in the same way that they they did the 1969 documentary, the Royals or whatever it's called, Royal Family, and then they stopped showing. I think they showed it, repeated it in the early 70s, and then the Queen said never again. So, and the BBC said fine, but. The BBC, it's a BBC documentary, so why are they doing that? You know, license fee payers paid for it. Yeah, 
So it, it's a very odd relationship. And I, I, I mean, David Dimbleby is interesting. He's interestingly critical in saying it's too much deference, deference and they don't get into some of these um, scandalous stories such as the cash runners. You know, they just, all they do, I mean, Nicholas Witchell, who um, I think The Independent even did a piece not that long ago about, you know, five times that he was... Um, a deferential or whatever, but I mean, well, it, even it, Prince Charles at the time was sort of, oh, he's not that awful man again, you know. Even he's like, God, please just tone it down. And it, it, there's something odd about royal correspondence, but I mean, he, he was the one that started saying after he had agreed to pay off Virginia Giffray, saying, Oh, you know, maybe he can start to do something for charities dealing with domestic violence or something as a way back. And he was, it was like he was there promoting a way back for Andrew, you know, like a press up. officer, basically. Yeah. And I was like, what charity in their right mind would want Andrew anywhere near them, particularly one that deals with vulnerable women? I mean, it's just such a weird thing to say. But yeah, it's a very strange. We did a, we did a thing again, going back quite a while ago that we, we sort of looked at all their stories on their BBC News website and we went back to other stories that we'd had in the press. So we're quite often quoted in the press or we give stories to the press about things like reporting uh, challenge to the police. Um, and we came up with quite a few serious stories that the BBC had largely ignored and a long list of things like, you know, Prince Philip stubbed his toe and you know, Prince Charles said he likes his son, that kind of nonsense, which gets reported. And I say that people think I'm joking, but there, were, there are things like, you know, Prince Charles has said how proud he is of William, that sort of thing, as if that's worthy of some kind of news coverage. Um, so yeah, is it? But it's a, I think it's a culture rather than a conspiracy. But I think that there is an element of collusion which they just think is part of their job, um, and I think that needs to end. Emblematic of this was, um, I think, on the day of the release of Spare, on the day, there were three separate articles on BBC Online. Got the, I've actually got the titles here, right? This is the title of one of them. This is the, on BBC Online. Harry's memoir, Spare, displayed beside How to Kill Your Family novel. So it's like, this is a story about a little independent bookshop. Ha ha. A book review. Who, who knows? I, I didn't know that the, the BBC friend has book reviews now. The weirdest book ever written by a royal. Another piece was titled, Why Americans Seem More Pro-Harry Than Brits. That's three BBC articles on the same day that Spare is published. And you think, this is public relations. This is not, this is not public service journalism. Yeah, you think you you would say that's, that's a fair accusation? Absolutely, and they they uh, it's commonplace, and particularly, I mean, we, again, we did last year with the jubilee. I went through because they have a kind of a whole page of where you can see all the stories that they've done for the jubilee, and you can flick through it, and there's about four hundred of them. One of them mentions us, maybe two. One of them was about us, um, and it's about the fact that we'd had these billboards everywhere saying "Make Elizabeth the Last." And all the others are sort of, you know, um, some bishop in Wales has commented on how wonderful the Queen was and, you know, someone that met her once said how wonderful that was. And the one time they talk about us, it's a Republican bill, billboard or divisive Republican billboards, you know, and it was and they started with the criticism of the billboards rather than the fact that there is this growing campaign that is doing billboards and is is making a splash, which was getting reported in all the press, including overseas and you know, New York Times and Washington Post and whatever. So it was making a big splash, but all the BBC could do was uh, quote one person. Who the lead was, was the criticism rather than the thing. Yeah. And, and the headline was divisive, like as if, you know, 
these people causing trouble when everybody else is enjoying themselves. And I don't have a problem if they want to criticize us or challenge us, but in the context of everything else they do, um, it is, yeah, it's appallingly one-sided. And it leaves people even now thinking that, you know, they are kind of the only Republican in the village because they think that uh, they don't see enough of this criticism. Yeah. It's the same with so many, so many um, things when it comes to politics in this country. And I think it's really Achilles heel actually of progressives on the left. The BBC can't do any wrong. And I think it's um it's an in, it's an inbuilt weakness of any public service broadcaster when you have a huge amount of market share and you're trying to represent everybody and the institutions of the state, and that those two things can never disagree. The civil society and the institutions of the state can't disagree. Yeah. Clearly, they are. That's how change happens. And I think I think I think progressives are sleeping on it. Final question. So somebody could have watched all of this and they might think, oh, this Graham chap's rather smart. I quite like Republic. I'll get in touch with them. I might set up a direct debit, follow them on Twitter. Um, I like the arguments. You've convinced me. But look, the alternative is President Blair. What do you say to them? Well, I mean, certainly I wouldn't be President Blair. I've met one person in my whole life that would want him to be president. Um, it wasn't Tony Blair, but... Uh, um, <laughs> um, but... The alternative, firstly, is uh, the implication behind that is, you know, America, France, something like that. And that's not what anybody is talking about. We're talking about taking a parliamentary democracy, which is sort of what we have now, not quite, but sort of, uh, and making it genuinely democratic. So you have a written constitution, which just sets down the, the fundamental sort of building blocks and principles. You have a fully elected parliament. Uh, you still have a prime minister in the lower house. The upper house has uh, some degree of, uh, you know, sort of power to be a, a check and balance, and you have an elected head of state who is primarily a an ambassador and a representative, but who has very limited constitutional reserve powers, who is elected by all of us. Now they do this successfully in Ireland, in Iceland, um, indirectly elected in Germany, in the Baltic states. Uh, they've just done it in Austria. Um, this is very popular. Uh, new president. Um, they do it in places like uh, Italy and Greece as well, which have um, had all sorts of sort of political and economic problems over the last decade and a half, but their presidents have been quite useful in sort of keeping the ship of state afloat and keeping things going. So it, it is a, it's what we have, but democratic. And if you look at places like Ireland, for example, and Iceland and elsewhere, they not only are the systems good and more democratic, but they also elect some amazing heads of state, quite inspirational interesting uh, people. Um, and I think that on that point alone, we would be spoiled for choice. And Blair wouldn't you know, come within a whisker of getting elected. He wouldn't even stand. So more Ireland than France. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, you know, Ireland has come out of our same political tradition and they have created something which is better. It's not perfect, but it's certainly better. If you look at Michael D. Higgins, the current president of Ireland, you know, he was a uh, a Labour politician. Labour in Ireland is quite a small party, um, but he was also uh, a poet and an academic and a, an interesting thinker and very passionate on a whole host of social issues. And he has been hugely popular. Um, and he was preceded by Mary McAleese, who was the second woman to be president of Ireland, but the first from Northern Ireland. Uh, again, hugely popular. Um, Mary Robinson was just before her in the 90s, first woman uh, to be um, elected head of state. And her succession by Mary McAleese was the first time in the world, I think, that two women have succeeded one after another as head of state. Um, 
Iceland has had some brilliant heads of state. There's a woman called uh, Vigdis Finnbogdata, who was the president from 1980 to 1996. Again, largely a ceremonial role, but a, a powerful symbolic role. And she was the first woman ever in the whole world to be elected as president, as head of state. Um, had a huge sort of social and cultural impact, uh, particularly for women's rights and equality, gender equality. Um, Wacking Gork was the president just before the current one in Germany, who was previously a pro-democracy campaigner in East Germany and uh, became uh, head of the Stasi records in Germany after unification and was hugely popular. Uh, another excellent German president was Richard um, von Weissacker, who uh, made some pretty inspiring speeches in the 80s about how Germany deals with its past. Uh, you have Taja Hanlon in Finland, first woman to be president of Finland, who was, uh, again, hugely popular. I mean, some of these people get popularity ratings in the 80s and 90s, um, and they're elected. You know, and this guy that's just been elected in Austria, you know, he seems pretty popular. He won, I think, close to 60% of the vote. Uh, for all the talk about, you know, his uh, influence on things like their approach to the war and so on, in Ukraine, I mean, it, it's a post with relatively limited power. It's the prime minister that runs the government. Yeah. But, you know, these are people who do a similar job to the monarch in this country, but they have accountability if they get it wrong. Uh, they have um, a mandate if they need to use any of their limited power. And they also have constitutions which are there for them to guard and protect. So in Ireland, for example, if Parliament passes a law which the president believes is unconstitutional, they can refer it to the court to be uh, adjudicated on. Whereas here, our government can pass whatever law it likes, doesn't matter how awful it is, how many rights it attacks, whether we, you know, banning protests and stripping people of the right to strike and, you know, whatever it likes, there's almost no limit on the power of government. Um, so long as they have an acquiescent backbench um, and can often use privy council powers, crown powers as well um, outside of uh, the parliament. And the monarch will do absolutely nothing to protect us against the government. So, yeah, the alternative is fairly simple, very democratic, but in the wider sort Graham, of- Graham, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, longer term, it's, it's quite powerful as well. That's a very compelling argument, Graham. And if people want to stay in touch with your work and, and find out more about what you do, how can they do that? Well, republicdoll.uk is the website. It's pretty simple. Um, so, yeah, it's Republic. Uh, we do what it says on the tin. We are a single-issue campaign, and uh, we have been growing enormously. So we're, getting, we're looking for a big protest, hundreds of people at the, at the coronation. Uh, we've... Um, grown enormously over the last two years all these big stories help us um so yeah get involved and the good thing about being a citizen instead of a subject is it's difference between being a participant and a spectator and the same with campaigning and being a republican you know you'll get it if you get involved and work for it graham thanks so much for joining us thank you Support independent journalism and set up a regular donation to Navara Media from just £1 a month. Head to navara.media forward slash support or face the consequences.